The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And again, a big welcome to everybody online and everybody here in the room, and especially for anybody who's here for the first time. So uh, maybe some of you weren't here the last couple of weeks, but I've been talking about refuge. Are we in need of a refuge? And if so, what might that look like as human beings? And then last week, reflecting on spiritual urgency, which can feel a little um, unnerving, this, like, what's this human existence about? What am I supposed to do with this human life? Somebody tell me. (laughs) I mentioned last week there's this uh, great little teaching from Ajahn uh, Tanisaro. He's a Western Buddhist monk and the abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego. He trained for a long time in Thailand when he was a younger person. But he, he describes the three stages of spiritual urgency. So you might reflect on your own life going through these three stages, not always in a linear way, but cycling back through these very human experiences. One he describes as shock, dismay, alienation, right? And it's, it's sort of like something opens up in our life, you know, that phrase like, uh, you don't want to know how laws are made and you don't want to know how sausage is made. It's sort of that, that sort of thing like, oh, this is how power works both in my family, and my own intimate relationships, and the wider world. Ah, you know, it's kind of like a more sober, honest, oh, this is, this life, you know, locally, globally, this is just the dance of greed, hatred, and delusion in various expressions. Ah, so that's that one aspect of this wholesome spiritual urgency is just a more honest like when we live like the way we live then we get a human life and a world like we get like we have so that was the first the next is a chastening sense of our own uh, complacency right like uh like so much of my strategy for getting along in life is like I'm not sure I want to look in that closet, not sure I want to look under the bed, not sure I really want to take a closer look at how this relationship operates, or the underlying unconscious presumptions that I have around sex, around money, around, you know, any number of things. Just prefer to be complacent, to be unaware. and. When we see that, like how we've unconsciously chosen to be unconscious, to be numb, to be in denial, we're a little bit, in in a good way, I think, humiliated, like that doesn't actually make sense to choose to be unaware. Is there another way? And the last piece is, I mentioned last week again, an anxious sense of urgency in finding a way out. Right, so to whatever degree we get a sense of being trapped, 
and our habit energies, you know, that we're mostly, that being trapped in our habit energies depends on our being unaware that there are habit energies. And so we normally take our habit energies, our impulses to be me, (laughs) right? So why should I have to be aware of me? I'm already me, right? So this is sort of this, and I kind of, you know, what I'm doing is articulating how delusion works. I don't really need to turn awareness back toward how the mind is thinking, how the, what the mind is doing, because it's me. But it's not actually me, it's just a natural process. Habit energies, just a natural process. Acting out the lawfulness of whatever those conditioning forces were that made this personality and these emotional and psychological patterns what they are, we very much need to pay attention. But we deludedly think we don't. Why would I? I already know who I am, what I am, what I'm doing. But we don't. Because we presume when I have this impulse to say something, that I have that impulse to say something. But actually it's just a natural process. That habit is arising lawfully, naturally, according to very impersonal conditioning processes, like being raised in the culture we were raised in, by the parents or the caregivers that we were taking care of, taking care of well or not taking care of well, you know. But whatever it was, those were the conditioning forces, our friends, the particular genetic dispositions built into our, you know, physical makeup, whatever you want to call it. And then we get a human life like this. And it can be observed as a natural process. But it's, it's a real, as Ajahn Amaro uh, says, it's a real 180 degree turn when we start to realize this way that we can be aware of our human life. You know, we generally have such a powerful external orientation. We see the cause of our problems externally, and we see the resolution of our problems externally. Getting a better partner, getting to get a better home, better job, and even we externalize our bodies, you know, better body, get into shape. But we always externalize the problem out there, and there's me who's gonna problem solve that problem out there. Instead of really shining the light of awareness, wisdom and awareness back on this process. So, in order to cultivate, I want to talk about in the next few weeks, what might for us feel like, look like a wholesome desire for awakening, a wholesome, legitimate, appropriate desire for freedom, for ease, with conditions, ease with the way it already is, right? So to, to have, uh, to be able to, you know, build the confidence that, in a sense, it's our birthright, it's available. I mean, this 
I think is a pretty radical statement. So I don't, we certainly shouldn't take, we shouldn't just believe that this is true, that given my conditions, my circumstances, this time and place, this body, this personality, these relationships, living in this world, that I can be at ease. We shouldn't just believe that, but we might want to be curious. Like, do, because there's sort of that external orientation I was talking about a moment ago, the presumption then is I need a different life, a different world, a different relationship, a different situation, then I'll be at ease, then I can be happy. But now with these conditions. But the spiritual, the you know, the Buddha's approach would be that always thinking that I need different conditions is a promise that's never kept and is, turns out to be the cause of the stress that we feel. We want to manage something that can't be managed. We want to dominate or control something that can't be dominated or controlled. Our body, our mind as a natural process, our thinking mind, can you control it? Can you decide what kind of thoughts and emotions you have? No. Let alone our partners, our friends, our family, the world around us. There is this built-in vulnerability and uncertainty in the world. And yet our strategy is always, like for happiness, for ease, for safety, is always like one way or another, I'll rally my competence and I will dominate my situation, you know, I'll get in control, I'll, I'll think it, I'll, I'll strategize it, I'll get things right, and then I can, rel- I can really relax. You know, I just got to clean my house, or whatever, you know, is there. If I could only learn a foreign language, <laughs> if I could only master English, <laughs> I feel that way. I have a little bit of a just uh, my auditory capacity to like to hear, and uh, it's not so much actual hearing, but it's just a language processing thing that uh, is difficult for me and other people in my family. And uh, it's like so hard. <laughs> I had a you know like a lot of places I needed to. Uh, pass a certain level of German in order to graduate from college. <laughs> I have to say, it was not easy for me <laughs> to master that language well enough to qualify. And just these sort of, these inevitable things that we bump up, you know, you might have a particular physical situation in your body that you have to deal with, or a particular unresolvable thing in your family that just sort of like, an open wound that doesn't seem to, you know, don't know the right medicine. Because the medicine might be like how to be at ease when things are broken, when the heart feels like this. Like, doesn't it feel like, oh God, how are we going to make the political situation in the United States right again? as if it was ever right. It's like we conveniently forget about McCarthyism or you know any number of terrible things, all the lynchings or all the other terrible things that our past is filled with, as if there's some glorious past to get back to. 
I'm not saying we don't work for change. I'm just saying that maybe we shouldn't be postponing being at ease. Maybe the responsivity to the suffering and the oppression can really come, it comes better out of ease than out of fear and hate. Like somehow thinking, I can't feel what I'm feeling or it's not safe to be feeling what I'm feeling. So those of you who are going to stay at 11.45 Central Time for the small groups, whether in the room here or on Zoom, or if you're not going to stay for the small groups, just to find time for your own reflection or a good friend to reflect with around your own relationship to fear. Because part of understanding the path of awakening, it's like one way, one window into understanding what the Buddha was talking about and pointing to, is to look at our relationship to fear. It's not that fear is wrong. It's like what the mind, how the mind relates to fear. Fear is like the best way to understand fear, I think, is just to see it as some information. Like when we have that experience of fear, it's like a, a very natural, lawful, heightened attention. Like when you're walking on a path and there's a huge drop-off, it's like the mind is naturally alert. Oh yeah, I should be careful. Because if I slip and fall to the right, I'm going to fall a long way. So you could call it fear, or you can call it like being alert to the conditions at hand and responding appropriately. Because in that case, fear is just the information, right? It's just highlighting some of the facts. Big drop off. Keep it in mind. Don't forget, you know. But sometimes what we do to fear is we use the fear to reinforce a narrative, like an ongoing story. Life, the world, reality is here to get me. It's out to get me. This is, human existence is a dangerous place. It ain't fair. Demons lurk around every corner. The only way, the appropriate way, you know, is to be tight. See, that's the misuse of fear, is when the mind, mostly unconsciously, presumes that the best way to deal with fear is to tighten up. You know, oh, if there's fear, then we should be tight. And the interesting question, like, is that actually helpful? Does it ease our way to being skillful in life, being tight? And the neat thing about this understanding then, this is like a sign of being on the path that the Buddha points out for us, is that all of a sudden we go from disliking the places where there's suffering and fear in our life to seeing them as like, like a teacher. Oh, this is interesting. I notice I'm really anxious here in this place, in this, at this meeting, or when I'm in traffic, or you know, when I'm around this person who I'm attracted to. 
I notice there's this fear, this tightness, right? There's this, the mind, the attention gets heightened, and then the mind chronically misinterprets that alertness to be a signal to get tight. Like, and who does that, what does that serve, that tightness? Because clearly some things, there, there are times in life when things are, you know, more dangerous. Let's just use that word. But even like we're in, in a situation that is sort of outside our comfort zone, like we're around some people of a different race or a different age group or a different class, economic class than us. And it's so, so then our attention gets heightened like I'm out of my comfort zone and I've got a lot of programming when I'm in this kind of situation that's now getting activated. And some of that programming isn't very wise, right? You know, like when we're in a place that's out of our comfort zone. And uh, so let me be attentive so that I don't cause myself or anybody any harm. And like if I really desire to be attentive so I don't cause myself or anybody any harm, getting tight doesn't serve being attentive, being open, being sensitive, does it? It's kind of a closing down. It's like burying our head. I mentioned, maybe it was at Buddhist studies about the ostrich and then someone, uh, Crystal looked up for me and for herself, you know, like, do ostriches actually bury their head in sands? They don't. Right? It's one of those terrible slights against ostriches. <laughs> but they say that because they're rolling their eggs around, that maybe from a distance it looks like they've buried their head in sand or whatever, or eating, you know, something low to the ground. People might presume that that's what they're doing, but no. But we do it. You know, we unconsciously usually choose to be unaware because we don't know what to do with the um, unpleasantness of knowing that we don't know. Like whenever a situa situation is ambiguous um, and there's some uncertainty and we know we don't know, right? That's a, it's sort of like we haven't taken the time to cultivate a taste for that uncertainty and that ambiguity which is really just the same as saying being a beginner, being a learner, right? Because that's how it is when we're a learner. You know, remember when you were, whatever, five and learned to ride a bike? It was ambiguous, it was uncertain. We didn't know how to do it. And you know, there are a lot of situations like that. And we can actually cultivate a taste so that more and more of our day, we live in that place. Like even when we're around somebody we know really well, like let's say you have a partner. And it's so easy for us to be on autopilot with our partners or your friends or your pets or your job scene, you know, where you're with your colleagues that you've worked with for 10 years or whatever it might be. And, uh, but you know, whatever the situation is, that moment, this moment, it's never been that way. Like you might have been, those of you in the room with me, 
You might have been at Common Ground, some of you have been coming for years and years, but it's never been this moment. So no matter how familiar we are, this moment is definitely new. And we can be attuned to how fresh, how unfixed, how unknown this dance in this moment is. You don't know what I'm going to do, or what the person next to you to do is going to do, or even what you're going to do. But we just, you know, the narrative, the story is, oh yeah, common ground, or on Zoom, in the safety of my home, you know, video off, <laughs> anonymity. <laughs> it's okay to have your video off. Yes, <laughs> of you. Or, you know, even, because some people will just go to the live stream directly, you know, not to even have to deal with the little rectangle people on my screen, on Zoom. Right? So, but, but no matter how kind of in our own safe zone is, the present moment is always wild. Because the present moment, that's how we know the present moment, that there's an opening to the way it is, Buddha being intimate with Dhamma. These are our ways in early Buddhism that, or all the schools of Buddhism, that we talk about our refuge. Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, being awake, that's Buddha, awake, open, deeply sensitive, undefended, that's Buddha, with Dhamma, the way it is, conditions, the underlying nature, the way it is being exposed to the way it is. That's a refuge. Often, you know, from our conventional point of view, that sounds like a threat. <laughs> you know, I don't get to defend myself with my meaning that I have for myself, my ways that I perceive, the ways that I, the, the stories that I tell myself. I don't get that. That doesn't sound like a refuge. That sounds scary. And so we want to cultivate a taste for a refuge. Because when we're in that place, let's just call it being open. It's like nothing, like one of the characteristics of being open is nothing surprises the heart. And the reason nothing surprises the heart is because when we're open, the mind isn't unconsciously fixed on any expectation about the way it should be. Because that would be the story. Like, oh, Mark doesn't do backflips when he's giving a talk. You know, and then if I did a backflip or did something weird, you know, it would be like, I didn't expect that. But when we're actually open, we're not fixed. The mind isn't fixed on some idea of what happens when I'm at Common Ground or on Zoom listening to the Sunday morning talk. There's no fix. It's just being in that aliveness of what's unfolding and being known. So nothing surprises us. One of the things I discovered over time, you know, doing lots and lots of retreat practice, um, but you know how sometimes, you know, you're in a really quiet space in your meditation, and then there's some, un, uh, some loud sound just happens, you know, a car drives by, or backfiring of a car, or somebody sneezes in the room or something like that, and there can be a sense of 
shocked, like, whoa, I didn't expect that to happen. But then with more practice and the right kind of practice, like learning how to be wide open, both the breath and the depth of awareness, then something surprising can happen. But I noticed that there was nothing in the body and the mind that was surprised. Because in that moment, at least, there was nothing, there was none of that delusion active in the body and the mind that thought whatever the quietness was, wasn't going to change. So there can be quietness, like a stillness in the mind when you're meditating, and a subtle identification. This stillness is mine, is me, I got it. Because when there's that identification with the stillness, then there's always shock and surprise when something interrupts it. But when there's stillness and the wisdom that understands this is stillness, it's like this now, it's just something being known, then there's no holding to the stillness because the next moment there'll be something else being known. And the stability, the ease, the freedom is in the non-dependence on whatever the particular condition is, stillness, thought, disturbing sound, pleasant sound. That's how we, that's the only way to assess your practice and to assess the practice of those around you, including your teachers. There's a funny story, somebody that I used to really um, tune into, he died actually before I was born, I think he died in 1964, but he was a well-known Indian teacher, Swami Shivananda, and uh, he was a medical doctor in India, and then as a young man, kind of turned to spiritual practice, went up to uh, Rishikesh, which is in the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains on the Ganges River, and just practiced, and eventually a, a big modest, or a ashram formed around him. He was a beautiful person, it seems like. And I, I did have the good fortune to connect with a number of his students who became very famous teachers in their own right. But anyway, he had this very funny, very Indian uh, sort of approach, because uh, if you know in that part of the world, shoes are like not a clean thing, right? You take your shoes off when you go inside. And he said, if you want to know <clears throat> whether somebody has a good practice, you've got to do the SB40. And that means shoe beating 40 times. You take your shoe, you hit the person 40 times, and you see how they respond. And you know, in India, I mean, he, it's sort of a joke. But it, it's, a, it's an important point. Like when, if you're sort of hanging around somebody that you, you know, everyone is like in awe of, oh, holy person, you know, what you're really looking for is when something surprisingly bad happens to the person and how they respond. And if they freak out, it's like, well, that looks a lot like what I would do <laughs> if something unexpectedly bad happened. But if they do what needs to be done in an easeful way, so it's not like they're just going to take the shoe beating 40 times, but they don't, like, they're not offended because we all know that anything can happen anytime. That's what one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, used to say, anything can happen anytime. 
or there's that joke that went around, I'm sure some of you have heard about it. How do you make God laugh? Make plans. <laughs> right? Because that's not how things are going to turn out. One of these uh, disciples of Swami Shivananda was a man named Swami Satchitananda, an Indian uh, yoga teacher. But yoga and this, you know, mostly meditation. Uh, now these days we think of yoga as just the postures, but yoga is really the mystical tradition in what these days are called, it's called Hinduism. But it's really this sort of ancient practices in uh, northern India, mostly, or in India. But anyway, Swami Satchitananda, who became quite popular in the West, he had this really clever phrase, no appointments, no disappointments, right? And it's really this point, like, this is how we assess our practice. It's not that we become incompetent at navigating life, choices that need to be made, leaning in here, giving up that, but we just understand that the unfolding of my life and the unfolding of the wider world, it's really a function of innumerable causes and conditions. And that literally anything can happen. I used to always make the joke when I would make this Dharma point, this teaching point, like an asteroid could just fall, you know, hit the other half of the building, hopefully. Or, I don't know if people heard, but uh, when Fricky, my spouse and the co-founder of Comic-Con, was giving a talk uh, a month or two ago, May, I think it was, right here, on fear, no less, on a Sunday evening, and some bullet shots hit the uh, community room and shut out the windows. Just a couple random cars at war with each other driving through this part of the South Minneapolis shooting bullets, evident not just here, just in the neighborhood, but a couple of them hit the building, including shooting out some windows in the other room. So anything can happen anytime. It's not just, you know, a phrase we use sometimes. So what is it like to live that, right? And then we get a sense of that, what I mentioned earlier about cultivating that sense of uncertainty, ambiguity, not as an excuse to, I need some sort of mystical truth to cling to, to defend myself against the anxious feeling of anything can happen anytime. But it's just the opposite, like, I'm not going to defend myself, I'm going to purposefully feel, and I'm going to let uncertainty and vulnerability have its effect on my heart, my body, my mind. Like if we want to realize the what we call in Buddhism the sure heart's release or the sure heart's unshakable release, which is, uh, I really like that way of thinking like the heart that is unafraid, then we need that there is a there is a direct path. You ready? <laughs> very simple and very hard. When the heart, this heart, whatever this is for each of us, this moment you're experiencing, that's the heart-mind. 
So it's not, I mean, we sometimes point to this location, but the heart is this. So when we use this sensitivity, this exposure, this openness, and we practice, in a sense, letting it all in, letting it all be the way it is, then we can't help but realize the heart, mind, that's okay being intimate with the way it is. So if you want to be able to be intimate, unafraid, and free with the way it is, you see how it really sets up the means. Understanding the goal, the end, really helps us understand the path. If we want to be free, <laughs> if you didn't hear that online, somebody's phone that just said, I didn't understand that. Yeah, it's it's funny whenever you say, Hey Siri <laughs> well, Usually my phone responds. Yeah, so that's really helpful. It, it doesn't make it easier, but it really helps clarify. Because in any moment, if we can uncover the heart's desire, and I like using that word here, because there are wholesome desires. So if we can uncover this heart desires a freedom that isn't dependent on any particular conditions. So where do I find that freedom? Well. I can practice right now being free, being radically open, radically relaxed, radically curious with these conditions. And for some of us, boring, ordinary conditions are the hardest. For some of us, pain is the hardest. And surprisingly, maybe, for some of us, joy, pleasant conditions are the hardest to really open to, to relax with, to let in. Like, I don't trust joy, because it's betrayed me. But the joy didn't betray you, clinging to the joy as if you could hold on to it, you know. And then you feel betrayed when it changes, but it wasn't the joy that betrayed you, it was the wrong idea that you could lock in that nice experience and make it last forever. So letting joy in like to really be intimate with joy means we know it's going to change. And to be really intimate with pain, emotional pain, loss, whatever it might be, means that it won't always be this way. It is this way now. It's definitely this way now. And it's alive. It's still changing. It's not a, even the pain we really don't want to feel. We might imagine it's this fixed edifice but it's a living thing, grieving, loss, or whatever. It's moving. And even that great desert of ordinariness, when things don't feel like not so special, not bad, not good, boring, and we're looking for something juicy, well, the juicy thing is like not being afraid of ordinary, as if it were going to last forever. Only interesting thing is the buzz of the refrigerator, you know, and six more hours before my next meal, <laughs> and nothing on the internet to watch. I've watched it already, <laughs> you know, 
too hot to go outside. And I not being afraid of the idea that there's nothing to do or there's nothing that matters. So thanks for coming, everyone. Really nice to be with everyone this morning. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.